From American Public Media. Sorry about that. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Fitzgerald Theater. We're so happy that you could join us for this special evening with Joshua Dubois. I am Kate Moose, managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and our conversation with Mr. Dubois will start in just a moment. Um, you will be able to hear more from our two fabulous musicians in a little while as well. They are Robert Bell and David Stencil, and we're glad they're joining us tonight. But before we begin, I want to let you know that for the first time tonight, we're including a new audience in the event. We've invited people who listen to our program, Speaking of Faith, um, from Australia and from Tokyo and from Belfast and Nigeria to join us in a live webcast. And many people have already indicated that they're happy to participate with us tonight online. So while we enjoy the conversation between Krista and Joshua Dubois here in the theater, we're hoping that dozens or even hundreds more will be watching the live stream online, interacting with our live blog or following our commentary on Twitter, the ubiquitous social networking site. We're at SOF Tweets, if you have your iPhone with you. Along with the live streaming, we're also recording for later broadcasts tonight, and we'll be videotaping as well. Topping off this massive multimedia confabulation, our colleague Bob Collins from NPR News is blogging tonight at his blog, Newscut, at minnesotapublicradio.org. We will be uh, represented, therefore, in all of these media and content platforms, and possibly, we hope, in the several collapsed dimensions we can only theorize with, with advanced physics. So thank you for being here and joining us. And be here in whatever way feels most comfortable and most fun. For those of you who are here in the house, um, if you're here only to listen, I will ask you now to reach into your pocket or purse and turn off your cell phone. However, if you're hoping to interact with us online in the course of the evening, take this moment to keep your cell phone on, but turn off the ringer. 
Um, we're going to be taking questions from the House audience, and we'll also be taking questions from our online audiences tonight. For um, those of you here at the FITS, that means that you have a card and a pencil in your program. And online, you can submit questions at our website, speakingoffaith.org, or through our Twitter stream at SOF Tweets. Finally, with all of that business attended to, it is my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Krista Tippett. She, in turn, will introduce our very honored guest, Joshua Dubois. The facts about Krista Tippett are fairly well represented in the public record at this point. She was born in Shawnee, Oklahoma, on the night John F. Kennedy was elected to the presidency, granddaughter of a Southern Baptist minister, educated at Brown, where she lost her early religiosity to a secular education in the Ivy League, and then later she became special assistant to the U.S. ambassador in Berlin in the 1980s, when, uh, if you're my age, you may recall that the world's nuclear clock was ticking rather desperately. Krista has called her memoir, Speaking of Faith, a chronicle of a change of mind. Krista eventually returned to the world of faith and religion with uh, a singular insight. That insight was that politics, even the most dire and powerful politics of the 20th century, only account for a certain percentage of the meaning and reality at our disposal at any given moment. Returning to the U.S., she got a theological education at Yale, and she returned to the topic of faith and religion in uh, a new incarnation as a journalist, a thinker, and what we used to call a public intellectual, and as one of the world's really, truly great listeners. For six years, her insightful and spacious conversations have illuminated the intersection of faith and meaning and public life, and we are richer for it. Since I work so closely with Krista, it would be wrong of me not to share the fact that she is also a very uh, intense Battlestar Galactica fan. (laughs) She has an appetite for British mysteries. She's a regular practitioner of vinyasa yoga. And she is the devoted mother of Ali and Sebastian. Please welcome heartily my colleague, Krista Tippett. Hello. Um, it's always a good idea to get your the favorite people in the world to introduce you. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. Um, I want to add my welcome to Kate, to everyone here and everyone who is uh, with us online. This internet thing is turning all of us into TV people, whether we want to be or not, so I'm getting used to that. Um, I have been intrigued ever since I first heard of this 20-something figure named Joshua Dubois who was running Barack Obama's, the religious outreach part of Barack Obama's uh, presidential campaign. Uh, As you may have heard, that was a successful campaign. (laughs) And among its many distinguishing features, it really in many ways brought faith out of the closet in the Democratic Party, while at the same time actively reaching out to people on a broad spectrum of religious and spiritual identity. And then uh, in the very early months of his administration, when he was dealing with more than one global crisis, uh, President Obama announced the creation of the White House Office 
for faith-based initiatives and or Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, and he appointed Joshua Dubois to head it. Joshua Dubois was born in Maine. He grew up in Nashville in Ohio. He's 26 years old. He studied political science at Boston University and has a master's degree in public affairs from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. Uh, And after that, he went to Capitol Hill and gravitated very quickly towards a relatively unknown young senator from Illinois. I am delighted to welcome Joshua Dubois tonight to Speaking of Faith and to Minnesota. Hello, St. Paul. (laughs) And the world. And the world. And all of Twitter. And all of Twitter. All these things I don't understand and never may. Um, You know, I I start all the conversations I have if I'm talking with a quantum physicist or a theologian, but I'm very especially interested in your answer to these questions. Just, I'd like for you to tell us something about the religious and spiritual background of your life, of your childhood. Okay. Well, I'm a preacher's kid. Any preacher's kids in the house? PKs? Okay. There we go. Um, And my uh, dad, Reverend W. Anthony Sinkfield, is a wonderful pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, my mom is also very committed to her faith. And um, like some preacher's kids, I think, you know, being so close to religion, in fact, in some ways, Push me away from uh, from faith. Uh, perhaps it's because I thought I knew everything because I'm so exposed to it on a on a regular basis. So I, I actually didn't um, come to my own set of beliefs, and, and I'm a committed Christian um, until I got to college and mm. um, and found a wonderful church, Calvary Praise and Worship Center, and a great pastor and uh, good friends there, and became active in ministry there. So and that the was short version of at Boston University, where you were studying right. political science. And from what I've read, you had kind of a you you found your religious life at the same time that you found your political voice in a new way. Well, it, it was an awakening of sorts. Um, I, like many freshmen in college, didn't care too much about too many things, um, except, you know, where I was going to be on Friday night and, um, you know, who may or may not be, who, who you know, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, <laughs> But uh, there was this this moment early in my um, my college career where I, I became interested in the case of a young African immigrant named Amadou Diallo, and um, this was a young man who, um, because of an accident and, and unfortunate timing, was um, shot by um, by police officers forty one times, and and at the um, at the the time when the verdict came down and, and the officers were acquitted, um, there, there was something sort of uh, that was awakened, awoken in, in me. I, um, I, I felt just the monumental sense of both a failure of public policy and the protection that our government wasn't able to provide to this young man, but also um, a real moral failure as well. And, you know, I can't, to this day, I, I have a hard time explaining exactly what it was, but it, 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 it w- shook in me a sense that um, I needed to connect to something larger to understand all of the, mm-hmm. the nuances in, in the world, and both in terms of politics and also in terms of religion. So um, that's when I, I found my church and my faith, and also, you know, started my political path as well. Right. And, and this church, um, the Calvary Praise and Worship mm-hmm. Center, was Pentecostal church, it is, yeah. is that right? You know, something I think a lot of people in this country don't know who aren't Pentecostal yeah. is that in its origins, and certainly globally, 
um, Pentecostalism has deep social justice sensibility. And I just wonder, was that true also of this particular congregation? Sure. I mean, we are a small church, so we're limited in our um, in, in some of our abilities to be active in the, in the broader community. But to the extent that, that we can, and my pastor can, he certainly is integrated in the world around him and in, in the church in, in Cambridge. So, yeah, I, I would say so. Okay. I want to ask you also, you've um, talked about your grandmother yeah. who, I guess, took part in the sit-in, 1960 sit-in in mm-hmm. Nashville. Um, Something else I think we have kind of a short historical memory, maybe we're getting this back a bit in this country, is we've kind of told the story of the civil rights movement and even of Martin Luther King Jr. and secularized it Hmm. and forgotten that he was a preacher and a theologian first and that the civil rights movement had deep roots in religion. And I just wonder also, um, was that part of your grandmother's experience as well? It certainly was. She was um, certainly motivated by her faith in terms of her actions in Nashville in the uh, in the in the fifties and sixties, um, and and but the same can be said of my parents, but not as in terms of their social activism, but in the way that they lived out their daily lives and, and treated our family and our and you know my siblings and so forth. So yeah, I would yeah. say so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some accounts of you say that you're ordained. I know you're you've been a preacher yes. and you were an associate pastor. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've reached the first level of ordination in my church. Okay, all right, Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, let's hear about your first experience, or even when you just became aware of this. This guy named Barack Obama. Obama. Um, Well, it was actually a a fascinating time. I I was wrapping up grad school and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I was both very interested in my my faith and my religious journey and and serving in, in that manner and also in... Um, public policy, uh, and I um, was trying to figure out a way to combine the two. I was doing a, um, a, f- a fellowship in, in D.C. on Capitol Hill, and um, I st- struggling with where I was going to go in, in life. And um, I was at a restaurant, and I looked up at the television. It was the Democratic National Convention, and there was this skinny guy with an odd name, and um, I'd never heard of him before. And he was talking, and it was a compelling story, a compelling background, and then he was hitting all the policy issues that I really cared about. And then he started talking about the awesome God that we serve in the blue states. And I'm like, who is this guy? We worship an awesome God in the blue states. Um, And so, you know, long story short, short, I um, grew to learn more about him, read his book, and um, and sort of beat down the door to his uh, his Senate office. You really yeah. did beat down the I door, did beat you? down the what door. What did you do? You first got a rejection letter. Well, I, I, I tried to join up with the campaign, and at that time they had many, many volunteers, more than they could handle. And um, when, when he was elected, I um, drove down from New Jersey a grand total of three times to Washington, leaving my resume there, and eventually... When he was elected they, to the Senate. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, and leaving my resume there, and eventually got a, got a call back, so... Okay. And it's been a great experience ever since. Um, did you work with uh, with Barack Obama, with Senator Obama, on the call to renewal speech that he gave in 2006? Definitely. Um, I, he was actually the only Democratic senator with a point person for faith-based public policy, and that was um, my role at the time there. Right. And that was a, a wonderful moment and a wonderful speech that he gave. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And again, I think that I think this speech. Um, it's well known in some circles, but not in some religious yeah. circles, but not in others. I think it's really a watershed speech. I, I, I do kind of suspect that it will be discovered. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from sure. this. Um, he said in 2006, if we truly hope to speak to people where they're at, to communicate our hopes and values in a way that's relevant to their own, 
then as progressives, we cannot abandon the field of religious discourse. Because when we ignore the debate about what it means to be a good Christian or Muslim or Jew, when we discuss religion only in the negative sense of where or how it should not be practiced, rather than in the positive sense of what it tells us about our obligations to each other, others will fill the vacuum. Those with the most insular voices of faith or those who cynically use religion to justify partisan ends. I mean, that's taking his statement that really did electrify people at the convention. Mm -hmm. We we worship an awesome God in the blue states to another level and pointing to a new direction for talking about faith and working with faith in the progressive movement and the Democratic Party. And it's it's all about conversation. It's all about, you know, breaking down the walls of them versus us and, and, and realizing that, you know, across these different religious lines, you know, we can find points of commonality. We can still bring our own individual beliefs to the table and we can be clear in those, but um, at the same time, we can, we can still find things that we can agree with. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great speech. Um, did, did you realize and did he realize, did the other people around you realize that you really were charting a new course and was that intentional? You know, I don't think his purpose was ever to really chart a new course. It was just to sort of be true to who he was, a committed Christian, but who understood the the pluralism in our society and the fact that, you know, Democrats have to do a better job of engaging Americans on not just public policy, but on their values. So I think it was more about, you know, what what he knew to be true than um, than any desire to sort of shift the uh, the broader conversation in the party. But um, we're, we're glad that that appears to have happened as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you became the director of religious affairs, religious outreach. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the exact title yeah. was for the presidential campaign. Yeah. And you had a staff of six and lots, hundreds of volunteers, I think, who mm-hmm. you were helping oversee. Um, what was what your, does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> what, what, what do we what, do? And what, what was your message? What was your charge? And what obstacles did you encounter? You know, it was a fascinating time, and I, and it was really a monumental learning experience for me. Um, our, our message was that um, undergirding, underlying the, the policies that, that we all care about and that we talk about as a party and as a country are, are values, and, the, and many of these values are shared, and we wanted to know what values folks were bringing to the table all across the country, and then we wanted to express um, then Senator Obama's values and, and find points of commonality, points that, you know, quite frankly may um, uh, uh, prompt people to vote for him, to support him. Um, and so we did these conversations, these community faith forums all across the country where we would invite um, individuals into a room uh, across religious lines. They were fascinating um, arrays and tapestries of, of folks who attended these things. We had um, some in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire that were you know, largely secular humanists, but some evangelicals and a few mainline Protestants. Obviously in South Carolina, the mix was a little different. Um, and then um, and, you know, we did them in Iowa and other states as well. And we would come in and we would talk about, you know, what our common values are. What, um, and, and it was striking the difference between the religious debates that you see on television and mm-hmm. on cable news and the religious conversations that we had all across the country. You would think that we all couldn't stand each other if all you did was watch, um, you know, the, the right. news shows about religion. But when we, we were out in the field, you know, Everyone, whether you're an evangelical Protestant or a Hindu, you know, realized that we had a broken health care system and that and they knew people who were suffering as a result. And they and they also tied that to their values, to their faith. And um, so those were the conversations we had. Yeah. 
What did you learn about um, religion and politics that you hadn't known before and that surprised you sure. in that experience? Uh, you know, I think that, that that notion of common ground, and I, I don't want to, um, I don't, I don't want to stay here, dwell here, but that, that it was it was the most striking thing because we we're all told that you know our differences are so broad and wide, and there's no bridge that can that can span them. Um, but you know, I've been in Mon- little churches in Montana and and temples in New York and you know everywhere in between and there's so many things that people actually agree on and hmm. um, and so that was just startling I wasn't expecting that I was expecting um, quite frankly more pushback more heat and there was a tremendous amount of light instead so you know I think and even in these last years using those two words in the same sentence religion and politics yeah. so, I mean did you not did you not, not supposed to talk say, about those things no well I, you know I say we talk about <laughs> sex and money so we get and politics so we get to talk about religion too yeah. but um, <laughs> I did you not did you not did you sometimes um, get into a situation where people fell into the predictable positions and had to be nudged out Every now and then, I think at the beginning of the conversation you did, because folks think that's where they're supposed to be, that you're, you're coming into battle. Um, but then when you start talking about the president and, and then Senator Obama and where he was, and I mean, we talked about we would pull out quotes from the call to renewal speech that you just right. um, highlighted. And, uh, and then we would talk about, you know, w- one thing that I think was really important, and this was, again, driven by, by the president, um, was instead of focusing on issues, we focused on stories. So it wasn't, you know, tell me what you think about health care policy or tell mm-hmm. me what you think about war. It was, you know, who in your community or in your family do you know that's affected by, you know, a broken health care system? Or um, do you know anyone that, that is, you know, that's fighting in Iraq? Or, and, and, and what do you think about that? And how do your values relate to that? And so, you know, it's easy to disagree at the level of issues, but it's really hard to disagree with someone's story. Um, and so... Once we moved there to that part of the conversation, we saw a lot of walls broken down. Hmm. That's interesting that that's the story you have to tell out of that experience. You know, I spoke with um, Bishop Vashti McKenzie during the election. She's amazing, and she's on your advisory council, Mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And she talked about the... Just the the grief and sadness that 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 the Jeremiah Wright episode, mm. that, you know, and I, I think that's one way with all the press that was covering it and the issues and what happened, and uh, it, it was just kind of a tragic moment. And I felt that there was a terrible irony in the fact that you did have a Democratic candidate for president who was reconciling these things in his person mm-hmm. and in his campaign, and then it's kind of the human condition. Uh, Interjected. I mean, it's one way you can look at it. I just wonder, was that a real low point for you? Well, you know, in, in, in some ways, obviously, it was, a, it was a challenge. But in other ways, it was an opportunity. You know, I, I think and I was just so proud of the president when he gave that speech in Philadelphia a little over a year ago, um, where he sort of confronted these issues head on and I think gave a, a pretty good overview of some of the challenges we are facing and have faced as a country in this area and how, and how we can potentially move forward without, you know, glossing over things. So, um, yes, it was certainly a challenging time, but at the same time, I think it presented an opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it right that you were also a force in getting um, candidate Obama to go to the Saddleback Forum at Rick Warren's at the 
Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church. You certainly church. worked with him on, on that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that experience? I just will ask you. Um, I, I, I'll, you know, I'll show my hand a little bit in that I, sure. felt, I, I, I watched it and I felt that the cover, coverage was incomplete. In, in um, what way? Um, now, see, I'm supposed to be asking you the question. Well... <laughs> Um, that's a very good tactic for a politician. Um, for example, yes. Um, Three points, please. There, I'm sorry. There was there was the the soundbite on abortion okay. was when Rick Warren asked him. Um, I think the way he phrased the question was a little bit differently than he phrased it to John McCain. It was something like. Does a fetus have human rights? And um, and Obama said, that's when he said um, that answering that question is above my pay grade. And that's the sound that everyone heard. Um, in fact, he gave a very nuanced answer about abortion, which in some ways he expanded on mm. in this recent speech at Notre Dame. And I felt that, you know, that wasn't really covered. Yeah. And so um, when people declared it a loss for Obama, I just felt, I just wondered if the whole story was being told. And I wondered how, to, how you saw that. Well, you know, I, I thought then Senator Obama did a phenomenal job. And I, I was there with him at the time. And I, and I thought it was a really a nuanced conversation mm-hmm. about the role of faith in America. It, but in some ways that it wasn't meant to be soundbited, if that's a word. Um, and yeah. so it, I think the, um, and we obviously, we we, you know, we live in a news cycle that demands winners and, and losers, um, and, and so I, I don't think that conversation necessarily fit uh, those demands. But at the same time, I, I was, again, so proud of, of what um, he was able to convey about, you know, the role of religion in American public life. Even if maybe the message wasn't heard by people. Well, you know, I think in the end the message uh, was heard, and, and, you know, I think... Um, I, I, I think some of that nuance was was picked up, even if it wasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if, even if that's not where the the press dwelled. Yeah. Um, are you involved, say, in helping him, for example, write the remarks he gave at Notre Dame, or formulate those kinds of ideas on this issue of abortion? Sure. Well, you know, these these key speeches are all the president's voice, yeah. and uh, but I certainly work very closely with the team that works with him on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is one of the four. Uh, one of there are four issues, four kind of guiding issues, or um, there's a focus to to the office. The, to yeah. the office. Sure. What is it? What is the proper name of the office? Office of Office faith of Faith Based, based and, neighborhood and Neighborhood Partnerships. It's a horrible acronym, by the way. O F B N P. Yeah, it's really bad. So why did you do it? <laughs> it was. Uh, it's hard to to work around. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, so I mean, let's you know, let's jump into that. Sure. Um, what does it mean that the issue of abortion reduction is is one of the four guiding areas of your sure. your office? Well, I, I, um, I think that it means one that we, we we talk about it in terms of four pillars: um, mm-hmm. uh, so reducing unintended pregnancies and teenage pregnancies, supporting maternal and child health, uh, reducing the need for abortion, and strengthening adoption. So, just to be clear, there are four things we're looking at here, and we're one partner. Um, with the White House Council on Women and Girls, who is um, working very closely um, with us in this effort. And and it's just a simple idea that the president has that, you know, yes, this is a very contentious issue, and there are clear perspectives on both sides. And this table is not meant to resolve those issues. Folks are going to continue to fight those battles, and hopefully we can do it in a way that respects differences of opinion, where we can disagree without 
necessarily being disagreeable, but there are some points of common ground, of common purpose. We can all agree that um, that you know, pregnant women should be supported, that adoption and foster care should be strengthened, that we should have fewer um, teenage pregnancies. And, and so we are reaching out to both um, pro-life Americans, pro-choice Americans, faith groups, women groups, women's groups, and everyone in between to, to figure out where those policy areas are in the middle, um, while respecting the fact that you know, folks aren't, aren't going to check their deeply held beliefs at the door in order to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the conversation itself, at least right now, is as important as the policy areas. Well, they're both important. You know, we're not talking just for the sake of, of, of talking. And, and no, I think but talking for the sake of moving of forward moving forward. It, and it, it, you're right. It, it's critically important. You know, again, it's just the, the magic of sitting down with someone across the table when, um, when the press and the broader uh, political world tells you that, you know, you, you have nothing in common. And then you sit down and you figure out that, well, hey, actually, I, I do have a few things in common with them. Um, this person from another party or from another perspective. Mm-hmm. Let's just, um, I'm just going to give a little bit of history and correct me or fill this in if sure. you want, just for people who are listening, um, and, and I'm no expert on this, but, um, you know, in, in across American history, the Supreme Court has always allowed some aid to flow to religious entities. Um, but that used to be, and, you know, for example, the Great Society relied very heavily on the work of black churches, so mm-hmm. even in recent memory. Um, but for a long time, distinguished between degrees of sectarianism, and so there would be less uh, of a flow to, to organizations that were, what did they call, pervasively sectarian. Mm-hmm. Um, then in the late 80s and mid-90s, this concept of charitable cho- mm-hmm. choice was coined, and that was partly about um, allowing religious groups to compete for welfare reform funding on more of a level playing field. Um, now, obviously, this came to a different stage in the administration of George W. Bush. Um, he signed an executive order creating a, the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never passed as legislation. It was very controversial from the very beginning. Uh, the first director, John DiULio, quit within a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became politicized, and there was much less energy around it in the second term. Um, so, I mean, that's a nutshell history without so even going into So why are we doing into. this? So, yeah. So, so, I mean, you, I wondered, sure. and I wondered and, when Barack Obama first started talking about yeah. this during the campaign, why? Well, here's the reason, and, and then I'll talk a little bit about the office as mm-hmm. well. That's okay. Um, you know, the president believes that we've got some real challenges as a nation and across the globe. We've got too many kids who aren't getting the education they need. We have too many folks that are suffering with diseases and aren't getting the health care they need, folks that are suffering with poverty and hunger. And... And he understands that if we're going to address these things, then we can't do it in Washington alone, and that we've got to connect with community-based organizations, faith-based groups, all hands on deck. Not a, it's not a concept of some groups doing things better than, than, than others, but, but it's, it's about creating partnerships to serve um, people in need. This is something that he's believed for a long time. You know, everyone knows he was a community organizer coming out of college, but he was working with faith groups. With, right, he with, was right at the beginning. With faith-based organizations. Uh-huh. Um, but we're doing things a little differently, and I think that's important. Um, sort of three areas of difference, if okay. I may. Yeah, tell me also why the name changed. What's, what is signified sure. by the part, neighborhood it, partnerships? Decentralized. Um, the fact that in addition to faith-based groups, we're also working with secular neighborhood organizations, uh, nonprofits that are serving mm-hmm. their communities, the Boys and Girls Club, others. Um, 
So kind of three ways that, that we're changing course a bit. As you mentioned, the previous faith-based initiative was largely focused on leveling the playing field, right. making sure that faith-based groups had access. And even removing obstacles. Removing obstacles, making sure they had access to the federal government, access to federal funds and resources. And uh, you talk to the president about this, and you know, it's important for groups to not be discriminated against, but in addition to have a level playing, having a level playing field, you also have to do something on the playing field and, and have some very specific goals that you're hoping to achieve through your partnerships with, with faith-based groups. So we're shifting our mission, not just to level the playing field for leveling's sake, but, but to focus on some specific goals. And we, we have four goals, integrating community-based organizations in the economic recovery, um, supporting responsible fatherhood and healthy families, something that's really close to the president's heart. Uh, reducing unintended pregnancies and supporting maternal and child health and reducing the need for abortion and then interreligious dialogue and cooperation using both the bully pulpit of the presidency and various levers of the federal government to bring people from different religious backgrounds together. So the big picture is that the first way we're different is that we have a set of goals. Here, here's the ways that we're going to measure ourselves, not just based on groups that are receiving money from the federal government, right. but, but how well you're, we're achieving these four, four specific purposes. Um, Second way we're different is a renewed focus on outreach to a range of different communities. We really want to throw the doors of the White House open to um, to folks from different religious and non-religious backgrounds, um, and and allow folks to understand that you know that this is not an office just for one particular community. We also have a new advisory council that's wonderfully diverse, a rich tapestry of individuals. Does it's the kind of, advisory council also have uh, non-religious? It certainly does. Uh, um, big Brothers, Big Sisters, and mm-hmm. Seed Co. and other organizations that are secular are represented there as well. Mm-hmm. And then the third way that we're different is we really want to strengthen the legal and constitutional footing of this office. Um, the president strongly believes that the federal government can come into responsible partnership with faith-based groups and with community-based groups, but uh, that responsible partnership is key, that you know, he's also a constitutional scholar. He believes in the Establishment Clause and that organizations should not use federal funds for sectarian purposes and that they shouldn't proselytize using federal dollars. So we are working agency by agency to really strengthen that legal footing. So those are the three ways we're changing course, a new mission, a new focus on reaching out to a range of, uh, of groups, and then a, a strengthened legal footing. So, I mean, would you say that, that Barack Obama um, might have thought that the idea of the faith-based office, even when George W. Bush established it, was, was a good idea, was yeah. the right direction, but he wanted to do it differently? I think that's fair to say, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, if you have a question, you, I know you have cards. Um, this is the time to write them down or finish writing them, and in just a couple of minutes, uh, people will come through and collect them. If you are with us online, you are to submit your questions to the chat box. If you haven't done so already, this is new, <laughs> new vocabulary for me. Um, and then we'll open this conversation up, and, um, and you can all join in. Um, there's a lot to talk about in what you just said. Mm. Um, you know, first of all, these, these policy areas that are being privileged or mm. singled out, do they pretty much reflect um, do, do, they, do they reflect what the president thinks is important? I mean, there are many well, you know there are other areas yes yeah, so, so this that is just defined. this is one slice of the federal government um, mm-hmm. and and a relatively small slice at that um, and and so this is these are some areas that he thought we could best focus our energy and and, and myself in working with him to develop these, but obviously 
you know, the, the priorities around the economic recovery and getting our right. economy back on track and strengthening our educational system and, um, and, and having a more responsible foreign policy. Those are the, some of the leading priorities, along with health care and energy, of, of this administration. And he continues to move forward in a very robust mm-hmm. way. And there may be, um, and there, there are faith-based organizations involved in all of those. That's right. All those other issues. And um, one thing that's different about this office is that uh, we have a role on the Domestic Policy Council in bringing mm-hmm. the perspective of both faith-based groups and also community-based groups. And we really stress that latter part. The, um, we, we are a voice for nonprofits generally, including secular groups as well, and bringing them to the, uh, to the table. So, so let me just ask you, I mean, I think even this term faith-based mm. as an adjective or whatever it is, it, during the Bush years itself became politicized. And so I want to ask you, I mean, when I, when I use that term, when you, when you use that term faith-based, what comes to mind? Organizations that are um, rooted in a particular value system, a particular religious value system, yeah. And what are they doing? Um, well, you know, I, I think... It, it depends to, you know, on. The they're doing many, many things. Um, I, I think if they are coming into a formal partnership with the federal government, um, meaning a financial partnership, um, then they must be doing something that's secular in, in, in nature. But they're faith-based groups whose only purpose is to serve the spiritual and religious needs of, of you know, the, the population in their membership. So mm-hmm. they're doing a range of things. This... Um this notion of strengthening the legal and constitutional footing yeah. of faith-based organizations, that's, uh, that's tricky, right? I mean, you... Well, it's tricky in some ways, and in some ways it's straightforward. You know, things like encouraging groups to form 501c3s, which really makes a lot of this make a lot more sense. And, and I think we can do a lot to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And we're working with partners in various agencies um, even now to, to improve that process. Um, so th- there are some simple things that we can do, and it really starts... From the perspective of one, it's important, and we're going to lead with it. We're going to talk about it. Whenever we talk about federal grants and resources, we're, we're, we are also going to talk about the limits of of that funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, that you know, the vast majority of organizations want that want to stay within the lines. They just need to know what the lines are, and we have to make it a priority to communicate that. And I don't think that was necessarily done as. In but the there, past. there is this real hot button button issue of of hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's uh, the so? And there are surveys that show that I was kind of surprised to read this as I was preparing to read Two thirds to three quarters of, Amer- of the American public, with majorities in both parties, don't support government partnering with faith-based groups if those groups um, are allowed to hire and pay with public money only people in their own mm. tradition. Um, and I know that. You know, this is a very sensitive issue for people on both sides of the spectrum, and it's the first thing that that comes up. Uh, I mean, when when Barack Obama gave that original speech during mm-hmm. the campaign, it's the first fight that already starts to take place. So, I mean, talk about that. Are you in the middle of that? Well, you know, I, what we're doing is uh, the president has created a, a new process by which we're going to be able to explore these issues on a case-by-case basis, any mm-hmm. difficult legal issue, including the issue of co-religionist hiring. And how is that a change from the Bush administration policy? Well, it, formally written into the executive order creating my office, it, it's mandated that when any um, challenging legal issue arises, I have to work with the White House counsel and with the Attorney General 
um, to explore that issue fully and then bring a recommendation back to the president. So it in- increases the priority and profile of, of that um, sort of exploratory process. There were groups on, on both sides. There were um, progressive organizations that wanted a more sweeping change and conservative organizations that um, were worried about this new mechanism. But the president strongly believes that on this or any difficult legal issue that this office will face, that we need to fully understand both the legal terrain, the policy environment, and then and make informed decisions. So that's, uh, that's a process that he's created. Have you considered any of those cases yet? Or not, not yet. This no. is all just It's all very new. Very we're still new, isn't it? getting our email addresses and so forth. So, yeah. yeah. Really? <laughs> well, I, I do have my email address, but we don't have stationery okay, yet. But so. We won't tell anyone what it is. <laughs> um, and, you know, the charge um, during the Bush administration, uh, one concern was that um, supporting faith-based initiatives uh, might become an excuse for might might become one way to justify cutting government funding, mm-hmm. for example, for anti-poverty programs. Um, I don't think people are making that charge in the Obama administration, although it's a very new administration, but mm-hmm. you have this other problem of an economic crisis, yeah. and money is flowing away from faith-based initiatives. Um, state and, and local funding is already uh, being cut. Well, I certainly don't think that it's a zero-sum game and mm-hmm. that, you know, I think the president has the strongest su- uh, support of programs that are helping those who are most in need and, and really a historic level of support there um, that, you know, that balance with uh, the economic necessities of, of our time. Um, and so I, I don't think there it's really sort of two competing um, goals at, at all, at least not in this context. But there, I mean, there are very real cuts being made as we speak, and mm-hmm. I just wonder, are... Are these groups turning to you, and can you respond, or is this part of your charge? Well, one interesting thing is, and this was not, it was the case in the previous administration, but it maybe wasn't made clear that, you know, the faith-based office actually does not do grant funding. They don't do any direct Mm -hmm. grant funding, either the White House office or the faith-based centers that are within um, several Agencies. Instead, we are we, we tell organizations where the grants are and, and let them know what they need to do to apply for them. So, um, we I think we are hearing from more groups, both secular and religious organizations, that 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 um, are, are experiencing tough financial times. But um, we're just sort of pointing them in the in the right direction. Um, did you you helped pull together meetings that Canada Senator Obama as a candidate had? Mm-hmm. Um, with conservative leaders, is that right? Mm-hmm. Because and he was ones too. he was pretty proactive. And pro- <laughs> yeah. yes, I know. I don't think that was so surprising to people. Um, he, you know, it's very visible right now that he is um, not always successfully trying to create um, more work across some political dividing lines. Obviously, this is all new. We get mm-hmm. that. Um, he did make some interesting inroads uh, in the election among religious voters who hadn't voted for, for a Democrat uh, in the previous election. And I just wonder if you are aware of, um, of more religious cooperation across some old divides that may be happening behind the scenes now that we're not hearing about. I, I, I think so. And um, we have fascinating conversations with folks from different religious backgrounds around um, you know, issues from 
uh, you know, criminal justice reform and ex-offender reentry to um, to various civil rights issues. Points that you know, conservative evangelicals and progressive mainline Protestants and our friends in the Jewish community are really coming together around. And um, and and I think we're honored that be- because of the president's profile and his voice and his humility in approaching these issues in these communities, he's able to serve as a real catalyst there. So yes, those conversations are certainly happening, and we're certainly seeing movement. Mm-hmm. And I know something that a lot of people were watching and that I was watching and that I have been watching for a long time, even outside the context of the campaign. It's kind of a generational shift within evangelical Christianity Mm. in particular. Um, Not necessarily that issues like abortion or some of these social values issues that define conservative um, Christian politics and research, not that those are necessarily going away, but that the agenda is broadened. Mm. And, I mean, you know, that's your generation. So, I mean, I wonder what you see in terms of a generational shift among evangelicals your age. We saw a wonderful broadening of the conversation. We did a... um one of the faith forums that I mentioned. We did one in Colorado Springs. Um, Which is a real hotbed of conservative it, it, Christianity. It certainly is. And, um, and we had an overflowing room of mostly younger evangelicals who certainly you know, had clear positions on some of the social issues, but wanted to, one, find some common ground on those issues. I don't want to leave that to the side, but also wanted to talk about other things as well, our, our climate, our, mm-hmm. um, the way that we're treating those who are most in need, the, the poor in this country and around the world. Um, we had a great surrogate, Donald Miller, a young evangelical author, um, you probably know, and, and he would go around the country having these conversations as well with young evangelicals, and, and you know, there were a lot of points of common ground there. Mm-hmm. So... Even while, again, um, I wouldn't say that bipartisanship seems to be the order of the day in Washington, (laughs) um, it also doesn't seem like the culture wars, especially with that religious component, are what they once were. Where do you think the culture wars are right now? Fighting can leave one tired. (laughs) I I think, quite frankly, there's a... um, there's a certain weariness, not necessarily among some of the pundits and and, and those for whom these battles are you know, a living, um, but um, <laughs> but among you know everyday Americans, both conservative, progressive, and everywhere in between, that you know you kind of get tired of hearing folks yell at one another, and and you want to just you know f- find ways to move forward together, and also to just you know support your family and make sure your kids have a good education, and and um, and so. I think there's there is a weariness there um, that you know folks don't want to fight anymore. They want to find some points of common purpose. Now, I think that, um, but it, uh, there's an important distinction though. I'm not sort of just talking about relativism and that everyone believes the same thing. Right. You know, uh, more you know, really embracing this notion of a pluralistic society where everyone has their beliefs and they can come to the microphone and say what they think, but that we can do so in a peaceful way um, and in a way where we're still looking for points of common ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in these years since you started to work in Barack Obama's Senate office and now that he's president, would you say that the culture war, as, as you've experienced it's it, a little is different. a different thing? Yeah, and um, I, you know, I think that's because of a variety of things, but I think the president's voice there is, has been a key factor, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, will, um, we are going to be joined again by our musicians, Robert Bell and David Stencil. Oh, great. And um, we will. Before we, can I do just yes, one sure. thing real quick? Uh-huh. And I'm sorry, this is sort of a logistical thing for That's my fine. job. So the president asked me to do it. Everyone, just bear with me. For everyone okay. in the audience, could, could you just raise your hands like this, please? Everyone, just raise them a little higher. 
Could you move him like this? I promised the president I'd shake every hand in St. Paul tonight, so I'm sorry. That's horrible. <laughs> that's really bad. Right? <laughs> you are good. I, <laughs> sorry. I want, let me just let me ask you this question before we go to the yeah. music. Um, you know, I know that Jim Wallace likes to introduce you and say that and, oh re- and remind people that Martin Luther King Jr. was also 26 years old when he started his ministry in Montgomery, which is very intimidating. It is analogy. I wish Jim would. But <laughs> it must be it must be heady to be in the position you're in right now. It's. I'm surrounded by some really impressive folks. Uh, certainly, the, the president is probably the most impressive. So I'm, I, you know, I'm often humbled by who's around me and, and the folks that are committing their their lives to, um, in service of this country. So I, I don't think about that too much and just try to do my job. Is everyone you went to high school with jealous? <laughs> no, they're, 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 they're I, I try to keep my Facebook pretty updated, so they're along this journey with me. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll hear just a little bit of music, and we will have a bigger conversation. Great.
We're going to welcome Larry Jacobs on stage to moderate this um, this part of our conversation. Larry is the director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey Institute. Wonderful to have you uh, and a fantastic conversation. We've Thank got you. a variety of questions from the audience as well as online. This is a question from the audience. This administration is very respectful of all religions. In doing so, it seems that Christianity is downplayed. Where is scripture for the president? I'm sorry, say that last part again. Where is scripture in the president's well, the pre- thought about faith? The president is a committed Christian and has, has certainly never been ashamed to talk about the role of, of his uh, faith in his own life and in the life of his family. Um, at the same time, he, he thinks that uh, because we are, are a pluralistic society, that we have to make sure that everyone, folks from all different backgrounds, know that they have a place in, um, in uh, you know, in, in his work and in the work of, of the federal government. So I think it's a balance. Um, but I would say that you know he's been out front, really, you know, talking about what his faith means to him. We've got a, an online question. Not long ago, Colin Powell reminded Americans that there should be nothing wrong with being a Muslim in this country. What initiatives can your office take to change the perceptions about Muslims in America in our time? Sure. Well, it's an important question, and we are certainly doing a tremendous amount of outreach and engagement with the, uh, with the Muslim community. And um, I think the president has sent some phenomenal signals as well, um, both with his, um, his inauguration speech and also his address in Turkey. So, you know, it's going to be an ongoing process. There are a lot of bridges that still need to be built, but it starts with conversations, with engagement, and we're certainly working to do that. You've talked about the faith-based office that you direct. It's four areas of focus. We've got several questions about um, other areas where uh, a faith-based orientation and the humanism that the president has talked about might have an impact. For instance, the release of uh, evidence relating to torture, American involvement in Darfur and trying to relieve uh, the humanitarian disaster there, and other challenges facing both our, our global community as well as the American community. Well, you're certainly right, and the, the, the person asking the question is right to note that um, the perspectives of the faith community extend far beyond um, you know some of the priorities of this office, and in addition to to moving forward in those four areas, we are also charged with bringing that perspective to the table and to uh, those who are making decisions across government um, and and so you know our job is when uh, religious americans community based groups have a perspective about a particular issue, whether it 's Darfur or climate change, we make sure that perspective is heard elsewhere in government we 've got a whole series of questions here about this tightrope that you've been walking uh, about the pluralistic nature Mm -hmm. of our faith communities. Uh, Here's one from the audience. How can we balance the issue of making sure children have a spiritual life with no religion in public schools? Well, you know, I I think that um, that families are balancing, you know, uh, some of those challenges every day. And um, I, I uh, I think it's up to individuals and families and parents to strike that appropriate balance. And do you see a role for your uh, for the faith-based office? And does the president see a role in, in helping America kind of walk that, that tightrope, or is it really just up to individuals to, 
to pull that off? Well, you know, I think it's, it's important to know what, what we are doing and, and should do and, and also what our, our limits are. And I think, you know, in terms of counseling families about how to um, navigate, um, you know, the, the school versus home life balance is uh, maybe a bit out of our, our purview. Or, or even I think the other piece of that is is weighing in on what happens in education in terms of religion. That's, I think you're saying that that's also not that's, in your... It, it, you know, we, we will certainly bring the perspective of faith communities to the table um, mm-hmm. in, in those conversations, but, um, but you know, there are other, other folks who will weigh in on those conversations. The Pew Forum recently uh, released a report that showed that 50% of Americans who uh, have become unaffiliated with a religious organization... Mm-hmm. And they've done so because, quote, they think of religious people as hypocritical, judgmental, or insincere, close quote. (laughs) This question from online asked, why do you think half of unaffiliated Americans feel this way about religious people? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure. (laughs) Any unaffiliated Americans here that want to explain that? Um, I, you know, I I would say the president is speaking for, for all Americans, both those who are affiliated with a particular faith background and, and those who, who aren't. So I wouldn't want um, to speak for, for those, those Americans. You know, I have to say about that, those Pew numbers, um, people are not saying that they don't have religious lives. They're not mm-hmm. saying they don't have spiritual lives. They're not saying they don't have practices or go to services. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes they have very rich religious lives, but they are saying that they're not going, that they won't apply a label to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an interesting trend, but it's not necessarily away from religion. It's, it's, it's a different way of being religious. Yeah, or away from structure, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were very active in um, the campaign as you were talking with mm-hmm. Krista and an uh, effort to reach out to uh, faith communities. There's obviously a, another election coming up in 2012. Uh, it's some time away, but I'm sure there's already some thought what are some Larry, st- you're one of the only people who's thinking about the 2012 <laughs> election right now. <laughs> it's never too early to ask about 2012. Um, I'm thinking about next week. <laughs> are there uh, uh, thoughts that you have about the direction that the country is going to head in the next three years or so that would create a campaign in 2012 in which uh, faith is present but not in a divisive way? You know, I think that we have made in the, a very intentional shift from a campaign that I, I think was uplifting and that, you know, because of the, the president's voice was able to really build communities and bring folks together uh, to now governing. And, you know, that my job now and the role of this office is to build partnerships with faith-based and community-based groups to serve people in need. And, and, and we're really focused on that now. And, and so we'll let... 2012 come uh, when it when it comes, but you know I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to speak to that at this point. Here's a question from the audience: How do you avoid partisanship in the use of funds through the faith-based offices? It's well, that's there's an easy answer to that. We don't touch the funds, which is um, really important, and we and we we make that clear that you know in the competitive grants that are going out across the federal government, my office does not sort of move money one way or another, we'll, ha- we'll make no attempt to, to intervene, and, and we'll make it 100% clear that politics um, have nothing to do with, uh, with funding decisions. So yeah. d- the way I understand it, what you are doing is helping 
say, uh, religious organizations, community organizations um, know how to, how to get into the system. That's right. right? How to write effective grants. And, and also, we are focusing on non-financial partnerships, what we call civic partnerships. How can we communicate important information to a faith-based group, whether, you know, we just did a big conference call on pandemic flu preparedness and, or, or on disaster preparedness more broadly or, you know, obesity or whatever. How can we extend um, information or resources or technical assistance in a way that um, is, is not just about grant funding? And also, how can we um, connect groups with other resources, whether it's state and local faith-based offices or um, with uh, you know, with one another, so that they can share best practices. There are many things that we can do that aren't related to federal grant programs. And state faith-based offices are a key part of it. And I, I say that I see your Minnesota faith-based office head, Lee Buckley, here, and, and she does a wonderful job here in, in Minnesota. Yeah. I'm sure Glad that's appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we've got a, an online question uh, for both of you, and it really is focused on this very difficult economic uh, situation we have where unemployment is rising, uh, millions of Americans yeah. are facing foreclosure. And the question is, do you see the economic crisis we're in today creating a revival of faith across the country? You know, we were actually talking about this mm-hmm. before, the, um, before the program started. Um, I certainly see, obviously, we all see increased need. Um, and, and I think that there is probably an increased role for um, faith-based and community-based organizations in, um, in meeting that need, whether it's providing job training services or sim- simply food to those who are, um, who are increasingly um, you know, suffering with hunger, um, whether that is also a, an increased, um, uh, I guess, religiosity. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, we are seeing communities that are sort of a little tied a little closer together than, than maybe they've been before, and sometimes that, that translates into strengthened faith communities as well. Yeah. You wanna well, well, I think um, you, you can talk even after something like September 11th or in the, in the middle of a, of, a, of a crisis like this, and a global crisis, a national crisis, you will have, you'll have attendance at worship service going up. But I don't know, that usually is short-lived. So again, I, and I agree, I don't necessarily know that you can say you, you people have deepened faith, but I do... Um, in this project that we've been conducting online and on air, which we're calling Repossessing Virtue. I mean, we do hear people talking about um, asking themselves questions of what matters to them and Mm -hmm. what sustains them, which are spiritual questions as much as they're financial questions. Um, And they're spiritual questions that people may ask if they're very religious or not religious at all, but they're questions of meaning and I do also think that people are hungry for community. Mm. And I hear that a lot of younger people who I think don't feel like they've grown up with a really robust experience of community are wanting to create that and, and looking for tools to create that. And religious institutions are places that, um, that know a lot about community. And so there is that, that synergy there. A question from our audience. How will you and the president stimulate and encourage interfaith dialogue on local levels in our communities? Well, I, I think that the president can do it um, just with his voice and his presence, like he did on his trip to uh, to Turkey, and, and I'm sure we'll do in his upcoming address um, in Egypt. Um, one thing that we're we are seeking to do is move from dialogue to action. There's a wonderful project, for for example, in Nigeria where. 
Christians and Muslims are coming together to address malaria and provide um, bed nets that that, um, provide protection from mosquitoes, which then leads to malaria, to um, hundreds of thousands of people. So interfaith action, I think, is important, both abroad but also here at home. How can we promote interfaith service, you know, people serving their country across religious lines uh, together? You were talking a bit about uh, the speech at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the lead-up to that speech, what the uh, objectives were? There was, in a week or two before, there was a lot of press talk and some unnamed White House sources saying, not going near abortion, don't want to put too much emphasis on that. And then we get a speech that's about abortion. Could you walk us through your thinking and, and the president's thinking about why that evolution happened? Sure. You know, I, I wouldn't say there was much of an evolution. You know those unnamed sources. Um, but they, I, I, I would say that, um, that you know, the, the president thinks that when there is a challenging issue that it's best to confront it head on um, and to shine some... You know. And that, you know, Americans can, can handle it. They can handle the conversation. And, and that we, we can, you know, we're, we're, there are going to be some points of disagreement. We shouldn't gloss over that. We should acknowledge them. But uh, they, we can also find some points of agreement as well. And so I think that was always his intention with the speech. Um, the, your office that you're involved in, there's obviously a lot of uh, faith-based organizations all across America. How do you balance the major uh, kind of national faith-based organizations uh, uh, ac- mm-hmm. across the country versus the smaller organizations uh, that may have very deep roots within a community but are really just limited to that community. Sure. Well, you know, there's also the challenge of capacity. We are a relatively small office, and there are lots of organizations that are out there. A lot of what we do is reach out to um, national organizations that have local roots so that they can help us expand our communications ability and reach out to, to their local networks as well. Um, we also uh, try to empower folks with tools so that they can then take to others. So, um, you know, using email and conference calls and so forth that, and then asking people to share information out across their communities. But we certainly don't favor large groups over small ones, and um, all are welcome to, uh, to, to engage with us. You know, you said something interesting to me, while the music was going on, but um, that a story that's not often told is that there were some great people working in the faith-based office in the Bush administration, Mm -hmm. and that a lot of those people have come, are are still there and are part of your... You know, there are some wonderful folks, um, probably kill me, Ben O'Dell from the HHS Faith-Based Center, Mm -hmm. Health and Human Services Faith-Based Center, and uh, so many civil servants who who really believe in responsible partnership between... Um, the federal government and faith-based groups and have really given their... And, and even including previous leadership of the office, you know, I think that, again, you know, the, the media tends to focus on some of the challenges as opposed to some of the great work that was done. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm curious, and maybe some of them would know this, and maybe you all haven't been working together long enough to have had this conversation, <laughs> but um, I wonder if uh, the office is now being approached by a whole different group of faith-based organizations than the well, ones who may have been best known 
uh, in the last eight years? We are certainly casting a wide net, um, you know, in addition to our wonderful conversations with the evangelical community, with the African-American Protestant community that are very full and robust. We are also meeting with, you know, many in the Jewish community, the Sikhs, Muslims, Hindus, um, a range of, I don't want to start naming and then I, then I will have left someone off, um, but uh, a, a range of groups that weren't necessarily engaged um, uh, in a, in a real full way before we're, we're trying to reach out to them. Mm-hmm. We've got a question here online. I'm, I'm struggling with how to answer it, so I'm going to come right out. Uh, oh, no. This from online. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that online world. You know, there's online people. We're, we're, we're wrestling with them. You do have okay. the option to skip questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the question. Um, have you been surprised coming from, uh, you know, your relatively short history, coming out of college and then mm-hmm. graduate school and then working for Senator Obama and now, you know, in lightning speed in the White House, by the level of scrutiny and criticism of the faith-based uh, initiative and your role in it? Sure. You know, I think we've, we've had a pretty supportive um, response to the work that we've done so far, and we're, we're, we're glad for that. There were, but there will certainly be bumps in the road. Um, and, you know, I think... Um, the in in this 24-hour news cycle where you know where conflict is at a premium, um, any time that there's a glimmer of conflict, it will it will be scrutinized. So, but we saw that on the campaign. Um, then Senator Obama saw that in, in the Senate, and it's not anything that that surprises us. But so far, things are going well. But you know, there, there may be some challenges in the future. So you've been through the tests of fire and hardened by it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay, we've got a, a couple questions uh, from uh, folks in the audience here um, about how they get involved and contribute to what mm-hmm. you're doing. What kind of opportunities are being created for citizens to get involved in faith-based initiatives in the White House office? Sure. One of the most important things that, that we can do is share models about what works in communities across the country. If you have a great program that's providing job training services or um, housing services, whatever the case may be, um, you know, we, we want to know about it. There will soon be a new website for the faith-based office where you can submit that and we can, we can share that across, um, across the country. One of the things that we want to be very intentional about, though, is that not every organization will receive a, a federal grant. So that's you know, I would love to be able to say that one of the things you can do is, you know, is come and apply for, for grant funding, but there are far many more organizations that are out there than, uh, than grants available. But one thing, but, but we can share information. And so having models of, of what works, I think, is going to be really important. The other thing is, you know, simply serving in communities. The president um, is, is a huge supporter of national service along with the first lady, um, and, it, and what individuals are doing in their own communities, I think, is helping to move this agenda forward. So, in other words, you wouldn't want people to kind of, uh, kind of shift their focus to Washington. Rather, you're saying the focus ought to remain in the communities think and so. think of this as a facilitating uh, mechanism for that. I, do you, you right. want to know? I mean, do you want people to just to let the, your office know of what they're doing? If there's something innovative, if there's something new and unique, and that um, that they, that individuals or groups think that um, other organizations can learn from, I was mm-hmm. um, talking with someone from an organization called Interfaith Furnishings in New Jersey, and they um, they they collect. 
from different religious organizations and members from different um, houses of worship use furniture and then redistribute in a, in a sort of a unique way. Right. Um, it's a small example, but you know I'm, I want to highlight that, and so that if other houses of worship want to want to want to replicate that, then now they know how to do it. So, um, so yeah, we we do want to know. So they write you an email, or they send me an email, mm-hmm. um, or they will go to a new website, which um, well, should be about two weeks away. Mm-hmm. Again, it's all very new. I don't have the stationery yet. So. Okay. <laughs> We've got two uh, final questions here. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, about uh, President Obama's approach to leadership. Uh, when it comes to Washington legislative politics, he's made uh, efforts to reach out to Republicans. Mm-hmm. He's appointed Republicans to the administration. He meets regularly with Republican leaders and, and, and members of Congress. Is there a similar sort of dynamic in trying to break down old barriers in the area of faith and religious organizations? You've met, for instance, with the uh, Family Research Council, which uh, you know, I think for some people uh, was a pleasant surprise. Uh, is there a similar dynamic going on yeah, here? Yeah, and you know, really you know, driven by the president again, and, and the fact that you know there can always be at least one point of common purpose with an individual or, or an organization. So um, we are we are, we're continue to work with, um, with groups that may be more aligned with the president's uh, position on issues, but also those who who are not. And even in our in our advisory council, in other ways, we have um, we have Republicans, we have uh, conservative evangelicals who are engaging with us. Even though they, you know, these are folks who uh, who will disagree with us sixty percent of the time, and or seventy might not vote with you ninety percent, and the that's time. okay. That's perfectly all right. But it's about having this dialogue across old boundaries. That's right. Here's the the last question: um, What would be the one or two influences that have shaped you and prepared you for this position and this unique time in history? It's a good question. You know, I um, I, I think. Um, my my uh, upbringing and uh, you know my mom was a single parent for a while and we really struggled with um, without too many resources in fact some time without a uh, a place to live and and I think that um, going through that, that struggle allowed me to have a perspective that it's never it can always be worse and and so the um, the the terrain of politics and um, and now in this, the administration, we we can handle some ups and I can handle ups and downs because you know that we can always you can always experience something worse. Um, so that's one thing. And then I, this the amazing experience of the campaign um, of folks who saw then Senator Obama and 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 really got a sense that there was something more that that their country could do together when they broke down the old barriers and looked across the table at someone who maybe from a different racial background or religious background, even a different political party, but, but they could grab onto something in that person that was like them. And we saw that in communities all across the country, and, and that was just a, a life-changing experience. So those, those two things have really shaped me. You know, that we've had a poster for this event, and um, it's a picture of you and Barack Obama, and you're standing over his shoulder yeah. and pointing at something. And just before we came in, you, I commented on how how much you must love this photo, and you said you remember that day. Yeah. Tell me about that day. That was at the Compassion Forum in, um, in, uh, in Pennsylvania at Messiah College. 
And it was a wonderful forum put on by our great friends at Faith in Public Life and some other organizations as well. I believe Sojourners was active in that. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a conversation with the, with the candidates on faith and values. And, and um, the president just did a great job talking about... It was the Democratic the, candidates, right? I believe so at uh-huh. the time, yeah. And well, I think the Republican candidates were invited, but they uh, didn't okay. come. I think it was maybe Hillary Clinton, John That's Edwards, right. and Barack Obama. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, um, uh, so anyway, that that was the yeah. day, and it was a great moment. Yeah. yeah. Was, you, what was going on when? Do you remember what you? We were, were pointing at someone we both knew, and then I think I said, um, "Senator, look who's there!" And then he pointed to, and we're like, "Hey!" Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, what it, that's what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was more profound than that, but <laughs> we were pointing at the way forward in our country. <laughs> I want to just ask you a couple more questions. And then sure. Thank you, Larry. Um, and this list flows out of that, and, and I don't even know how to quite put words around this. I mean, in his inaugural address, President Obama spoke, said, Historically, I think that we're not. This is a nation of Christians and Jews, yeah. Muslims and Hindus, or maybe he said Christians and Muslims, Jews and yeah. Hindus, and non-believers. Um, and I know that I, I think that, that that's a re, that's really an, an important focal point mm. for you, is because in these last years we haven't just had this these culture wars between conservative religious people and progressive religious people. We've had a kind of a battle that took place a lot in publishing between uh, religious people and atheists, <laughs> right? And, um, but it is a new kind of challenge. It's, it's a challenge that, that is responsive to what's happening in our world and our culture to create a conversation across those uh, dividing lines yeah. as well. Well, you know... But it's, the president's I mean, it is, a, it's a new territory, in a way, to do it in public like that. It, it is in some ways. You know, the president's a committed Christian, but he understands that we've got a wildly and wonderfully diverse country. Um, but it, it becomes less challenging when you focus on the issues. On the, right. Um, you know, when, when you're focusing on health care and on energy, you know, the, um, uh, cancer certainly does not know any religion, you know, and, and, um, and, and neither does, um, you know, climate change. So, um, and, and, the, and the effects of it. So, you know, I, I think when, when you, when you have that lens that we, we've got some mutual challenges that we have to face across those lines, then it becomes easier to negotiate, ne- negotiate those differences. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm aware in my work, and I'm sure this must be also what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You have, you have, um, Social action and service projects where humanists are every bit as engaged mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and passionate yeah. about an issue like uh, the environment or poverty. Um, and so what you're saying is that you're connecting people across those lines of service. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it's hard to talk about. I mean, I think that's where some of this skepticism was coming in some of the early questions. Where's, yeah. Well, where, then where does faith go? And well, do you stop, and do it, you stop uh, claiming your religious ground? Well, and again, you know, it's, I mentioned it before, but it's the difference between, you know, we're, we're, again, we're not talking about relativism here. We're not talking about people having to check their beliefs at the door. Um, you know, I think that does great disrespect to both religious folks and those who don't adhere to a particular set of beliefs. But um, instead, just acknowledging that we are all different, that we all believe in some um, fundamental truth, and that may be different, um, but we can still have points of, of common purpose. Anything you want to say or talk about that we didn't touch on? I don't think so. This has been a wonderful conversation. Well, I'm glad we were able to have it. It's a question, though, to ask here. Okay. Um, 
President Obama has talked a lot about having the best basketball team in uh, presidential <laughs> history. We want to know about your role in it. Um, <laughs> I have sort of a Charles Barkley-esque game, which is, you know, largely consists of getting in there and fouling somebody. So. <laughs> if it works. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you, Larry. Um, I want to thank um, Tony Bull and the event staff at the Fitzgerald Theater, Tom Campbell and the, um, or the live event staff at APM, Tom Campbell and the Fitzgerald Theater staff, the Speaking of Faith team, our colleagues at American Public Media, and thank you, Joshua Dubois, so much for being with us tonight. Well, thank you for having me.